it doesn't look to me like I'm recording. I can see it recording. But if okay. you're, you're confident my audio is being captured, we are ready to roll. <laughs> I am confident that confidence may be misplaced, but we will find <laughs> out for a long time. Yeah, you'll, we'll find out when it's over that it didn't capture, right? So far, it looks good. Confidence is high. Welcome to Transpose, a podcast. In every episode, industry visionaries bring their unique talents and insights into the transformation zone and transpose the ethos of an iconic brand, product, or experience into another market. Thought leaders, innovators, and creatives travel far into the future, unleashing disruption and a little humor along the way. Welcome to Transpose. I'm Justin Dobb. With me, as always, is fellow innovator, technologist, and futurist, Anju Ahuja. Today, we have a special guest to talk about the future of artificial intelligence in the music industry. While we have our own opinions, stay tuned till the end and we'll have a sample so you can render your own opinions. Let's jump in. It is my pleasure to welcome Craig Pilo onto our show. Craig, are you going to play some music while you're on? Uh, I had not planned on it. Well, that will be everybody's loss, just for the <laughs> record. But I'm so glad you could come on to talk about music, the future of music, the industry of music, making music, producing music, and how we think technology is going to evolve the course of all of these things related to music. Excellent. Well, I am happy to be here. All right. So I'm going to tell a little story about how we met because we haven't had a chance to really socialize. So, so Craig, right. Justin and I have known each other since business school, like 20 plus years ago. He's a Chicagoan. It's wow. almost 20, almost 20 years. Is it almost 20? I don't know. Okay. Almost 20 years September ago. September 21st will be the, the because it's Josie's uh, birthday. My daughter was born the first day of classes. Oh, that's right. Um, I forgot about school. that. So that'll yeah, be, she'll be 20 in, uh, in September. And he was in my study group for the entire two years, so he could not get rid of me. I mean, I'm sure he filed several complaints, and they were like, no, <laughs> stick with her. Um, so we were the young punks in the program, um, which was really fun. Now, speaking of punks, Justin, <laughs> I met Craig in the middle of a blizzard in New York City at a bar where we were introduced to Bullet before Bullet was a thing to drink. His brother, Terry, right. is actually the one that bought my condo in Chicago. Very good friend of mine. You're going to have to meet him one of these days. All right. Angela was with us too. So that was the first time I met Angela. The, Angela was yep. with us, right? Correct. And then we all ran around trying to not get our feet soaked in a bunch of slush and snow. Um, and the bar specialized in taxidermy, which I totally remember that place. And I've gone, I've gone aesthetically vegan since then. I just want to let you know there's no moose or things hanging in my new home. Um, but it was a really, really fun, crazy night. And yeah. then we've kind of been in touch over the years as Craig's evolved as both a musician and just as we've all hung out and done different things. So Justin actually has spent a lot of time making his own music. So you guys have that in common. And oh, I'm just going to be a noob in this conversation. All right. So speaking of Carrie, so Craig, every time we do one of these, I tend to go through this list of words or Justin will go through this list of words that we think really represent the person that's coming on to our show and you know, sharing with the audience in a very crisp way. Well, we hope it's crisp. What we think kind of describes the personality of the person on the other side of the mic. So I actually got a little help from Carrie on your list and I edited oh boy. it out. Now see, like, right yeah. away that makes me nervous because I feel like that puts me in a bad like 
I feel like I'm I'm being dealt like a weak position out of the gate. Well, well, for what it's worth, when I saw the list, I, I hit edit. I'm like, I'm not saying that. <laughs> I'm just not. <laughs> you know what? You that. should because he's probably right. It pisses me off, but he's probably right. All right, here's your list. Are you ready? Go for it. Now, some of this is me, so I'm going to dare you to figure out which is which. And some of this is actually both of us. Um, loudly obsessed, infamous, yeah. hilarious, deeply committed. New York accent, although he's never lived in New York. Go figure. Stank face, funk, sight reader, experimenter, and generally weird. All fair. <laughs> okay, good to know. <laughs> the accent thing is weird, though. I don't, I don't understand. Like, I know exactly what he's talking about. That was from him. And I said the same yeah, thing. Yeah, I knew that was from him, yeah. I yeah. was like, did he live in New York? He's like, no, no. <laughs> I so, probably just um, watched TV, like too many episodes of The Sopranos or something. I don't know. You sound like a cop. You sound like a New York cop. <laughs> but it was before that, though, too. The accent was before that. So I don't know. You know, I feel like maybe it was when I moved to Texas. Uh, I revolted against that Southern y'all. Y'all going to fixing to do dinner and y'all. I don't know. I, then the East Coast came out. That's actually a really interesting point because one of the things that I think a lot of people don't necessarily know about you, you picked a really hard program for your undergrad degree. And it's like when I watched the movie Whip Whiplash, I thought of you the entire time. Uh, you know what was interesting about how hard that was? You know how like a, 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 a you know, this guy goes in for a job interview and, and he says, you know, I want $150,000 a year in a company car. And the boss or the HR person says, well, somebody, you don't have any qualifications. Like you're kind of an idiot. What, what makes you think you deserve this? And he says, well, it's going to be a really hard job because I don't have any of the, any of the qualifications. So that's what it was like for me to go to North Texas. You know, it was, it was a, um, you know, a music school. I think there was 200 drummers when I first started there and like probably 198 of them, maybe 199 of them were better than me. So I had to practice and rise to the occasion just to be competitive. And you enjoyed that. I mean, there was a I did. To it. Yeah. I did. Um, because, you know, after leaving Connecticut, it's not like Connecticut was stagnant, but just I wasn't surrounded by 200 drummers that wanted the same thing I did. So just to be clear, Justin, uh, they grew up in the place where Mystic Pizza was filmed. Oh, got it. So like the outskirts of Connecticut. Correct. Beautiful area. Yeah. All right. So, Craig, before we talk about the future of music, I'd love for you to tell us, you know, and our cadre of listeners a bit about your history as a working musician and composer and about your company, Groove Tower Music. You know, when I was little, I just wanted to play. I just wanted to be a, a drummer and I wanted to get up every day and play the drums. So I went to music school and, and I pursued that for a very long time. With various degrees of success, I managed to make a living as a player uh, well on into my 40s. And then, you know, I got married and I had a kid and I kind of saw the writing on the wall probably in 2008 or 2009 that I needed to get something else going on in my life and in my career and for economic reasons outside of touring because it just felt like even back then, even 13 years ago, that it wasn't something I was going to be doing forever. I loved it. I had no reason to quit and no plans to quit, but I just feel like if you kind of put all your eggs in one basket or you get all your fulfillment and income from one spot, you're always you know one paycheck away from being homeless. So um, I got some other stuff going on in 2009. I started writing and producing music for TV and film, uh, production music primarily at that time. And uh, I did it on a part-time basis for the, you know, the last 13 years. And in the last couple years, I've kind of just switched the roles. I've become more full-time in producing music for TV and film. And I still play 
Uh, I still do a lot of sessions. I still play live. So I still have a pretty active playing career, but it's probably more 50-50 at this point. Um, and then I also do some freelance A&R work where I kind of assist another independent artist relations company looking for music for TV and film. So I kind of screen music for them. So I kind of have three things that I'm juggling right now. And then Groove Tower Music was the publishing company that I started so that I wasn't just writing and producing music for other people. I started writing and producing music for myself. So that's the best way I can summarize it and not put your listeners to sleep if they're not already. I'm sure most of our listeners don't understand how different those roles are from being a, a gigging musician to someone who is producing and publishing. And you know, what did it take to make that transition? You know what? It, it it wasn't easy. And to be quite honest with you, I'm still in that transition. I'm still in that transitional phase because, you know, a lot of touring musicians or, or just people that make their living playing, there's a mindset that like I've spent my whole life honing my craft. I'm really good at playing an instrument. I'm a really good guitar player. I'm a really good singer. I'm a really good drummer. And that might be true, but in the world of sync or production music, those skills are relevant, but there's a lot more to it than that. You have to figure out a way to make the recordings translate as well as as you've honed your craft and made your skills and your proficiency on your instrument translate. So it's it's relatable, but it's you have to let your skill set involved, and there's a lot of learning to be done to make that happen. And I have kind of enjoyed that process. It's been challenging and it's kind of hard to hear the answers sometimes that like what you're doing isn't cutting it, but it's a good process and it's fun and it's it's just a different creative endeavor than what I was used to. I would assume you have uh, to build an entirely new network, right? Professionally speaking? Yes and no. I've come across people who are, you know, really good players, but maybe their strengths were, they were composers. And then I've come across, you know, really good composers who we're also players. So there are people who are good at both. They are few and far between. So there are enough people that are loosely connected. I mean, that's how I got into it um, by people that I would play with and they'd go, Hey, you know, can you play on this production queue? Can you play on, I'm working on a movie. Can you play on this? Um, you know, like for example, when I was in the band player, um, they had one hit called baby come back. Um, that band would also record for a lot of movies and stuff. And I remember when they were recording that movie basic um, with Samuel Jackson and John Travolta, Pretty terrible movie, actually. But they did a remake of a song called Black Betty. Uh, by oh, Land yeah. Oh, that's a great song. Yeah, well, that what they re-recorded it for the closing credits in that movie. And I was that was that was the player, basically. Peter Beckett, the lead singer. So once in a while, like the Venn diagram or where those yeah. circles cross. So once in a while, you end up in a kind of a, night, a nice little click where those people meet each other. And, and then I just, I'm always naturally curious what other musicians are up to. So eventually I got, I was like, wow, this could work pretty cool in tandem with a touring career so that when, you know, you're 50 and you want to stay home and watch ballet or baseball games or whatever, you're able to do that. We should actually provide some context there because you've worked with a variety of artists and it might be worth just mentioning some of the folks that you've collaborated with in the past and how, you know, they might've influenced you, especially as you transition into this new phase. Uh, I've worked with, a. have been pretty fortunate that I've worked with a lot of artists. Um, but as far as like transitioning to sync and stuff, that's kind of all been my own curiosity, curiosity. And, and like I said, lesser known coincidences that have pulled me in that direction. That's kind of, again, it's kind of new and, you know, obviously since COVID, uh, there's a lot of transition and stuff still happening. So, uh, um, but yeah, as far as the playing goes, yeah, I've played with a pretty diverse group of, uh, artists and stuff. 
You've seen a lot of technology shifts. I mean, it's kind of, a, it's funny that we actually had you rewind a bunch of stuff to get onto your 2012 MacBook Pro to do this. Uh, <laughs> but talk a little bit about how you've seen technology change. We can get into the economics of how the industry has evolved too, because last time you and I talked, that was really clear. That was a clear theme on like, you know, if you want to make it as a musician, you really have to rethink the equation of yep. how you're going to, how you're going to basically bring the income in to support various endeavors. But talk to us about all of those things. Well, I mean, I think obviously, you know, the, the music, the, the music industry has been thrown into a blender since, you know, they invented the MP3 because mm-hmm. that kind of put the record labels out of business. And, and I don't necessarily think that was a bad thing. You know, I, I'm relatively, you know, conservative as far as like not liking change. And I think most people, they don't mind change as long as it happens to somebody else. But when it comes to them changing, it's a little more difficult. Whereas I kind of tend to embrace that a little bit more when it comes to music and, I, you know, I definitely have found it interesting to follow how music has evolved and how both musicians and sync opportunities have changed since the nineties when MP3s became pretty prevalent. You know, that, that was probably the biggest shakeup that changed things. Um, and then of course, you know, more recently you and I were talking about AI and stuff like that. And I think, I think there's a lot of growth in that area, just like AI in, in pretty much any industry. Uh, but how music is going to embrace that remains to be seen. And and obviously, that will also be faced with a fair amount of skepticism. So where do you see that technology moving? You mentioned AI. Like, in the next five years, I mean, are there things that thrill you? Are there things that terrify you? What are you seeing coming down the pike? Honestly, there's there's nothing that terrifies me. I believe that, with or without a shot of bourbon, nothing scares you. <laughs> yeah. And because I, I, I feel like the... The opportunity to abuse AI is pretty high, but that still doesn't mean you, you shouldn't use it. You know, Anju and I were talking about this off the podcast a couple of weeks ago when we were trying to set this up. And, I, you know, it's definitely going to have a place in music, but I also see both sides of how that can work. I mean, my question is, I know, and I know there's been a few companies experimenting with uh, all sorts of AI. The, the company, the A&R company that I work with now is primarily using it as a search engine. In other words, Yep. Um, when they want to find a piece of music to use for like a movie, but they can't really afford to license a big name track, you know, like a, I don't know, like an Eagles track or an ACDC track or something. They don't have, you know, uh, a half a million dollars to license a minute of a song. They'll put the that song into a search engine and the AI will match it to a bunch of other more cost effective alternatives. So I think that could be an effective use of AI. And even that right now is not perfected uh, because there's very little that you can't get with properly entered metadata at this point. In other words, when you upload music to a database, it's got the composer, the tempo, the key, the style, uh, all this data. And when you just can enter basically a word search to find something and get pretty close, the AI is probably barely at that that same level at this point. Um, I think the AI will get better. And we're probably not that far out. I think that's the first big use, uh, effective use of it that you'll see. As far as composing music goes, thankfully, I think we're still really far out from that because I know there's been all the big companies have experimented with it, Microsoft, Alphabet, um, as far as composing music to sound like, oh, we want a Star Wars type of thing or we want a, you know, a Trent Reznor style composition. and. Yep. And they'll pump those algorithms into a computer and it'll spit out some stuff. It's 
it's really bad at this point. And I'm curious how that's going to work out, but I'm not afraid of it. I'm more curious to see how that's going to pan out because at this point, I still have more questions than answers. And, and the biggest question, of course, being, do we want that? Do, do you want music composed by a computer? Do we want everything to sound like David Foster and Kenny G and, and John Tesh? And <laughs> it's, it's not bad, but if you start... Uh, yeah, No, I, I would say no. I'm just going to say, especially uh, John, uh, John Tesh and Kenny G, I'm just going right. to say no. I Man, don't, it's like being trapped in an elevator for life. Right. And I think if you if you start using AI to compose music, eventually the parameters are only going to get so wide and no matter what happens, you're going to end up with parameters that are more narrow than anybody wants to hear. But wait, so remember those, um, did you get a chance to look at any of that artificial intelligence created art that I sent you? Did you see any of those links? Yes, I did. Uh, I don't have it in front of me, but yes. No, but, so did you find it all like unrelatable? Like you wouldn't want to put any of that in your home? Cause I look at some of that sometimes and I'm like, Oh, that's an interesting piece. It makes me think. I, I might put that up. I, I think it's fascinating. I, I yeah. <laughs> well, you know, I'm obsessed with it already. But but Craig, yeah. I'm curious what you think as an artist because I'm I think I'm not it's an fascinating. Artist. But unfortunately, like I'm not very well versed in art. I would not be an authority <laughs> on on like I couldn't look at a painting and you know I could tell you whether I like it or not, but that would have no bearing on whether or not it's good. Yeah, but that's that's fair. I mean, I don't know what's good. I just know yeah. what I find appealing to stare at for a while, um, or interesting enough to stare at for a while. It might even be yeah. more important to me than appealing. Uh, so, okay, I, I'm going to go back to this whole notion of, well, we kind of talked about it. We didn't exactly get into it, but recommendation engines. So as a musician, if you were counseling me, a listener, on how to find things that you know are on the edge to get around recommendation engines, what would you advise me to do? Because you know, in my world, I like Nicholas Jarre for my own reasons. I like Robert Plant's vocals for my own reasons. I like Ken Vandermark as a jazz musician for my own reasons. And they're all because they are very experimental people, right? And that shows in their work. But then if I go and listen to stuff that's just based on Nicholas Jarre, I get a bunch of other, you know, frankly crap from other artists that I don't think is at all like Nicholas Jar. So what should I do to escape the algorithms that try to keep me in this little box? And herein lies the challenge. It's it's those very algorithms that are keeping you in that box. So right, I can't even I can't trust Netflix anymore. It does not right. understand me. I and I agree. I concur. You know uh, so yeah um, you have to seek out independent artists and you have to seek out when you hear something that's cool you have to be curious about where it came from. And then I, I always take it a step further. I'm like, wow, how come I've never heard of this before? Where did they get that groove from? Um, and that happens to me all the time. You know, I hear stuff. I'm like, wow. Who, and I'll, you know, Google some 14-year-old kid in Finland or Sweden or something. And I'm like, where did this kid study? How did he come up with that? Yeah. So seek out independent music and then, you know, kind of take it a step further than that and find out how they achieve that sound. You know, what were their influences? You have to do some digging. Or talk to the artist. So bringing that full circle, uh, how are artists changing the way they write, in, in your opinion, based on the way that these, you know, playlists work on Spotify and recommendation engines and kind of the new listening paradigm? Oh, that's a good question. It's a great question. And, and it depends on what your goal is. I want the music to be uh, a playing field where everybody can be creative and come up with cool stuff. But unfortunately, you know, a lot of times what happens is, you know, kids will get like a laptop with logic on it, which is a digital sequencing program where you can write music and layer stuff in. And then they'll get a membership to some royalty free website and they'll just download loops and kind of assemble them in their, in their DAW. And then they'll call themselves a producer or a composer. And while you might be able to come up with something interesting like that, 
the person creating it has very little understanding of what they're actually doing. And they're also at the mercy of what's already been created before them. They're not really creating anything new. And, you know, unfortunately, some of the hip hop guys fall into this category. And I love hip hop. You know, I just, I, I love it as a genre. I love it the way the lyrics are delivered. I love the topics. I love the, the different way, different rappers, their delivery and stuff like that. But trying to get back to your question, um, I, I do wish that people would dig a little bit deeper before trying to create music, you know, like take a few music lessons. You don't really need a degree in music. I'm not, I'm not saying go to music school and punish yourself like I did, but you know, take some music lessons, uh, understand like basic chord progressions, how melody works, how harmony works, um, and then start creating that stuff. So you have a certain kind of not respect for it, but like you have a certain understanding of what you're creating. And then I think if you agree to learn and dig a little bit deeper and educate yourself, that is when you'll be able to develop something that's kind of cool and interesting and innovative. Well, I thought when we were last speaking, you also mentioned the importance of theory. I mean, weren't we talking about this notion that almost all songs sound like the same three songs that appeal to one's senses? Which is yes. it's a theory. That's music theory. Well, and I sent you I think I sent you a link you on did. that. I don't I don't know if you check that out. But what's interesting, so after that big rant that I just went on about how you should be, you know, learn theory and learn how to be original. So everybody goes out and does that and then they end up they all end up writing the same song, you know, which is like theme and variations on Pachelbel Canon, which is a very um <laughs> you know, probably the the most recorded uh, chord progression out there and and these this comic group what what was the name of it the axis of awesome or something they're a comedy yeah. Tr- yeah. trio yeah. and they just yeah. they went out and they play the those those chord changes from that Pocket was Volcanic. hilarious by the way that performance that just cracked yeah. me up yeah and then it's like every song you've heard for you know all the hit songs you've heard for the past 20 years follow that same progression so you know i guess uh you know <laughs> you can go out and get all the education in the world but if you if you know if your goal is to make money selling music, then you're going to have to conform to some parameters at some point, you know? And so I think the trick is to find a balance, you know, figure out how you can do that and be creative at the same time. It's kind of like making wine, you know, like if you want to make money with wine, you have to make a cheap bottle that everybody can afford and have with dinner that goes with everything. Uh, You're not going to make a lot of money pricing at a hundred dollar bottle of wine and there's six of them, you know, it's just, you're not going to. Your boutique wines aren't going to pay the bills, you know. Well, kind of to your point, what one thing that um, I'm I'm fairly sure is um, statistically valid is the length of introductions in popular music, right? Have have shrunk because of the skip phenomenon on on Spotify and uh, iTunes. So that like, if your intro is more than like seven seconds before you're into a some of them are jumping right into the chorus immediately. Um, but if you're not giving someone a hook right away, you are skipped over and, and you don't get your credit for playback. So it's people are changing the structure of their compositions. Absolutely. And, and again, it depends on you know what your goal is. If your goal is to be commercially viable, yeah, you got to get to your chorus probably within 40 seconds of hearing the, you know, uh, pressing play. And yes, shorter intros for popular music are... Definitely. Again, if if that's your goal is is to not write niche music and or um, yeah niche music or 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 if you're not catering to the mainstream, if you are, if your goal is to get movie you know music placed in movies, TV, film, yeah, very short or non-existent intro 
get to the chorus quickly. That is that is absolutely correct. Yep. And I don't know if it's for Spotify or for online thing. But I, I thought, honestly, I thought it had more to do with people's short attention spans. But you, you're probably right. <laughs> or, or all of the above. Yeah, I mean, I'm not sure that there'd be room for a Bohemian Rhapsody or a Stairway to Heaven or, or even like acid jazz. Like I go to the acid jazz channels or free jazz or whatever, you know, label you want to put on it. It's all generally the same set of artists, but the lists are so narrow. And then they jump right. into all this unrelated jazz and it's just like, what is going on here? And maybe yeah. it is that a lot of these recommendations en- engines assume we don't have the patience to let the artists unfurl what they want to unfurl at their own pace. Mm-hmm. Well, my daughter had pulled out um, Dark Side of the Moon the nice. other day when we were in the car. Was that her I, first I was, listen? No, no. She had, you know, she had, she had, I don't know how she got introduced to it. It actually wasn't through me because she won't listen to anything I, I tell her to listen to. Um, <laughs> but um, it struck me as like, yeah, like there are some introductions in there that are like, a, you know, minute, 20 seconds long. And, and I'm just thinking there's zero chance that like this, she would have, she got it from a friend, obviously. So, and actually, now that I think about it, I think it's the she's working in a uh, spice merchant in Chicago, and I think it's the um, you know forty year old manager of the store who told her to listen to it. So that makes sense because she didn't get it off of uh, Apple uh, Music. I don't know where my daughter gets her music from, but she she has like an eighties taste, and I love it. She's always asking me about these different artists. I'm like, how did you even hear about this? You know. So I'm, I'm pretty fortunate. She's my daughter so far has been listening to all stuff that I agree with. Well, I like to, to pull out of my hat. Like when my kids are listening to something, I'm like, you know, they, they stole it from this. Right. right. Yeah. <laughs> and then bring, you know, pull out the, again, like you said, the eighties or, or nineties. Yeah. Uh, the track, mashups but... are always fun. Those are always fun to watch on YouTube as well. When you, 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 you hear your favorite pop song was written in 1982 by a different group and they overlay it and the chord changes fit perfectly, you know? So, okay, I'm going to go back to you loosely to AI and to tech because I have so many questions about this and I okay. am curious. So when an algo or a machine goes and composes a piece and it's ultimately enhanced by a human, right? Some artist perfects it or figures out like, you know, how to tweak it. Who owns the copyright? I actually don't know anything about law as it pertains to this. Well, that would be, you know, incredibly difficult. And I'm sure that's a legal battle waiting to happen. Okay. Um, So there hasn't been a battle yet on this. I mean, because luckily for composers, I mean, I, I just think we're still a few years out from a computer making a viable composition that somebody would want to listen to. Um, What it can do is, you know, again, it could probably put together something that hasn't been done before so you can get around outright plagiarism, you know. Right. Uh, so it might be good to come up with a set of changes that haven't been, um, you know, registered. I mean, that that might be viable. Again, this is all pretty forward thinking. So, I, and I, you know, again, I'm not in any way on the forefront of all this, but dabbling with, you know, production music as often as I do, uh, you know, you'd be crazy not to keep an eye on the situation. But yeah, I wouldn't have an answer for that. Who would own the copyright? That's a great question. Um, you know, is it the person running the computer? But if the computer wrote it and you didn't, and yeah, there's different. You know, if you use Alphabet's technology, does does Alphabet get like, right. a little bit of the action on it? Right. Um, say it becomes like the next John Williams-esque score to right. a big action film. Yeah. Well, I would not have an answer for that. That would be a question for a music attorney. And to be honest with you, a really specific music attorney too, because 
not all music attorneys know copyright. That's that's like yeah. a a niche a niche portion of you know music law right there. Who was the guy that published all those books on uh, mixology? Was it Larry Lessing? Is that right? Am I recalling correctly? Um, I don't know. No, it's not. Lessig is Creative Commons. Basically, it's kind of his thing. Okay, and, and but he made he made a bunch of arguments about the music industry, right? Probably. Yeah, I think right. that was him. Uh, and I read his stuff, but it was a long time ago. Um, so maybe we should get him on the show. <laughs> <laughs> he answered emails uh, I sent him years ago. So who knows? Maybe he'll do it. So Craig, you know, my background, I've been in a bunch of different creative fields in my career and um, kind of one of the foundations when I was leading creative teams, basically when covering the use of technology was always, it doesn't matter how you get there. Now, you know, you mentioned like some kid who pulls loops down and, you know, chops them up into something. In my opinion, I don't care if the kid knows anything about music theory, if if suddenly they've chopped these things up into a way that's really interesting and, and, and cool. Um, but like, I remember, for example, 20 years ago, when products like Photoshop hit the graphic design industry, you know, traditionalists were like, that's cheating, right? You shouldn't be able to do that. You should be in a dark room and doing these things. And even mm-hmm. further back, pit mm-hmm. orchestra musicians in the 80s said the same thing about the, D- the Yamaha DX7, right? right. Um, so I'm wondering what the music industry is saying about AI composition platforms. If you've heard anything like like Iva or Amper, again, these are, these are as, as uh, Clayton Christensen would say, they're, they're attacking the jobs to be done that most co- uh, commercial composers are, are finding their bread and butter through. Yeah, I have, I would imagine it's going to be met with tremendous skepticism. Um, and from what limited amount I've been exposed to, um, what I have heard has not been viable yet. Um, not to say it won't. And obviously I would not be able to give you a timeline. Sure. Um, but yeah, I would imagine, I mean, obviously, um, you know, composers and stuff would be horrified and skeptical of such a situation. We all are, right? So, I mean, my first job was a writer and I have no doubt that kind of the bulk of advertising, copywriting, you know, when I talk about bulk, I'm talking about like banner ads, things that that are used to generate a click or, you you know, some kind of action Mm -hmm. will be, you know, generated by AI and tested and, uh, you know, mutated and iterated over and over until, you know, it gets the click rates it wants and then propagated, you know, across the globe. Uh, that's why people are like, I want to be a advertising writer. I'm like, you should just write a novel or movie yeah. or something. Yeah. You know, it's interesting that you say that because when I think about my favorite films and, and even to some extent genres of films, but I'm a big fan of Kim Ki-duk, Wong Kar-wai, Lars von Trier. And, you know, not only are their stories gripping, but there's like the music is integral to the visual poetry, to the whole experience. It's always been integral to every one of their movies. Well, ex- with the exception of one Lars von Trier movie where I just don't think music was really that critical to the story um, from my point of view. So, you know, when we think about the use of tech, if you had to guess how they're thinking about how they would want to incorporate it or whether they'd eschew it, you know, what would you think is going to happen from, with respect to that kind of genre of film and scoring that kind of genre of Film. I wish that I had an answer to that, um, but I would just have a hard time believing that it's going to be able to delve to you know dive to those depths to because again when you're talking about scoring, it's it's not an algorithm you know it's an emotion and 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 you want to try to compose something that brings uh, a, a video or a moving picture to life 
And I'm just not, you know, I don't doubt that you could come up with something viable. I'm just saying, I'm, I'm pretty sure we're not there yet. So did you, did you ever watch the movie last night, which Clint Mansell scored? Well, actually, he he made the music for it. Okay. I I, I was just curious. Do they often, you know, is it true that an artist will just take the, they'll take the film and then they'll figure out what kind of music to make for it? Or does it go the other way around? I've actually never asked this question. So I'm sort of surprised I never thought about it, but what comes first? What's the chicken and what's the egg? Well, I mean, you can do it both ways, but I, I, you know, with the limited experience that I've had, you, the picture comes first and then the music needs to be scored to it. Okay. Um, Um, but you know, again, if you have a director that's like a big Trent Reznor fan, or and they want to in- include some of that music, uh, sometimes they'll tempt the music in, and they'll say, "Hey, I want to start with this. Like, here's the vibe I want." And they'll they'll actually go ahead and put what's called you know temp music into their thing before the real music is done, and then they'll give that to the composer um, and say, "I want something like this. Obviously, not this, but something like this." So Interesting. yeah, sometimes a lot, a lot of times actual music, the existing music is used as a placeholder. So what does this session look like for you? Give me a little bit of background about your, what kind of genre you prefer to, to compose in or, or genres, I should say. I have a few preferred genres that me, myself as a producer, f- feel like I could do a really good job with like, you know, investigative tension or anything with live instruments, like any kind of you know, like anything, guitar, bass, piano, drums, anything that those live instruments could generate would be my area. Obviously like percussion, percussive ad music too is another big specialty of mine. Um, and I, I've, you know, I've done, okay. wait, 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 what is that? What does that break, break that down? What exactly does that mean? Well, that's also a pretty big genre, you know, like, um, for commercials or internet ads and stuff like that. If you see like a big, skateboarding sequence or a yep. sneaker ad uh like the hand the clap and stomp kind of thing that you hear yep. the real high energy percussion thing and that genre is also pretty wide because it's got a lot of sh- subgenres. you've got stomp and clap you've got an electronic version you've got like you know kind of bucket drumming you've got drum line you've got drum set like i don't know if you saw the movie Birdman, yep. but like pretty yep. much that whole movie was scored by drum set a really fantastic jazz drummer named antonio sanchez yeah um, and that kind of opened up the doors for drums only composition. Um, and after that movie came out, a lot of libraries said, Hey, we got to get some drum set only kind of stuff happening. Um, now surprisingly the drum set only stuff, I don't think has been used to its full capacity. I think Antonio Sanchez and the Birdman thing was fantastic, but I really think that could be taken to a new level. You know, yeah. I really feel like that is something that has been, just the tip of the iceberg has been cracked as far as what that is capable of. And, and like I said, there's many, many subgenres of percussion only kind of music. Obviously that would be a field I would love to get into. And I've done some for other libraries, but I also, I want to feel like I'm holding the best back for my own, you know, like I really, but I need a project to, to get married to, to really bring it to its full potential. You know, you obviously need a worthwhile picture um, to get that proper, expression out of the drums or what and you know the problem again with drums is they're not melodic instruments so you have to you have to translate emotion with accents and crescendos and dynamics and the different sounds of the drums now there are some percussive instruments that are more pitched than others but when i say they're not melodic it's not like a guitar or or a piano for your 
non-music so, listeners. How do you find that creative project? I mean, do you go around talking to directors and collaborators? Like if I'm interested in innovating in a certain space, I find a technologist who understands the technology I want to work with, and then I lock them in a room with me, which I'm sure freaks them out, but you know, it's all in good fun. Uh, but I mean, what, what do you do? What's your method? So yeah, kidnapping is not really on my um, <laughs> list of uh, networking skills yet. But, um, yeah, you should try it. It's really effective. Ambu- ambushing people, uh, Anju, that's, uh, that's, that's. I do feed them and I feed them well. Okay. So, yeah. So, short of that, um, you know, I, I, I try to put together a sample of what I think is good. Like, I'll give a little sample or some bucket drumming or some. Uh, <laughs> I put, uh, I was doing something not too long ago. I, 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 something I was doing called for a break drum and you hit it, it gives kind of a real metallic sound. And I didn't have one. So I grabbed some bar stools from in the house and I mic'd them up and I put a video on YouTube and I got all these private messages like, oh, that's brilliant. And I was like, no, it, it's, it's not brilliant. I needed a metal sound and the only metal I had in the house was a, was a bar stool. So I brought it out to my studio and I mic'd it up and I hit it. <laughs> you know, it was, it was, but people loved how primitive it was. Yep. And again, like if you're getting real excited by that, it's like, well, there's lots of other stuff to hit, you know, like I have all sorts of stuff, you know. So, um, yeah, no, I haven't. Um, you know, I've found for me personally, the best way is to, is to get started on something, give a little sample of that and ex- express the interest to people. But I'm not really in bed with a lot of um, directors and producers. Uh, I'm starting to get more traction with a lot of music supervisors that are um, interested in hearing the music that I have. And that's good. Um, so it's definitely headed in the right direction. But as far as people that are um, actually working on a picture right now that have that that want percussion only, I'm. I'm not real deep in that department. So, I mean, maybe bar stools are going to make a comeback uh, as yeah. musical instruments, but <laughs> yeah. is technology and drums specifically, is it changing? Yeah, it really is. And, you know, that is another area where I, I think it probably early on probably scared a lot of drummers and stuff like that because the, the artificial sounds weren't that good when they first came out. Now the artificial sounds are very good. Yep. Um, you know, again, I still pride myself on being somewhat of a purist that I I'm able to generate sounds that are better than what's out there most of the time. But like, if you're doing big cinematic stuff at this point, you're getting your drum sounds from a pre-existing sample library. You know, yeah. somebody mm-hmm. else goes and samples and pays the, you know, the hefty studio fee to go in and have that stuff recorded with expensive mics and preamps and gear. And then they record it and they put it out in a little sample audio pack that you can download and use which is great. Um, and the, the sounds are really good. And if you're good at manipulating audio, you can make that work. So I'm sure like 20 years ago, that really scared people. But if you use that in conjunction, I mean, you still have to have a brain and an idea and an identity and something to say with your craft before you can really maximize that use anyways. Um, you know, so a kid who gets a laptop and logic and gets a membership to a sample free library, if they create that stuff, they might get lucky and come up with something. And like you said earlier, um, Justin, you know, it, the end result doesn't matter if it's useful to you, it's useful, which is great. But that's more like when you go about creating stuff like that, you're playing the lottery. Whereas if you have an idea and a vision, which I think a lot of music kind of lacks nowadays, if you have a vision yep. or an idea and an identity and a sound, and you're not afraid to create your own audio or your own sounds or your own ideas in conjunction with some existing audio that can be manipulated to your, you know, to your taste, to your vision, to make it work for you. That's when you've got something special and it takes a certain 
mindset and approach to get to that level. And those are the kind of people that I enjoy working with. Yeah, absolutely. You reminded me when you were talking about the drum technology that I use Logic when I when I compose. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if you've seen the AI drummers that are included with Logic now. Um, yeah, I use Cubase, but I have seen, uh, and it's very good. And there's another program called GarageBand where I think you can just, I forget the program where you can just punch in chords and it plays it for you. GarageBand does have the same kind of drummers, but in Logic, you can actually do a lot more where you can say, follow the groove of my bass line pushing or dragging or whatever, the drummer will will adjust accordingly. And you can really set a bunch of parameters. It's pretty fascinating. So I grew up first as a percussionist. Oh, um, excellent. And, uh, you know, playing uh, congas and bongos and, you know, you name it. Um, but I got to the point when writing, when, you know, I used to, you know, try and program all of my drums and things like this, because I, did, I didn't have a full trap set in the house and nor did I have the space to mic one up and, you know, with room mics and, <laughs> and the <laughs> like. Um, but it got to the point where I realized that I, there was zero chance, even if I had all those things, that I would be able to produce something as good as I could get out of these AI drummers. And I never even think about it as AI, but it, total, it totally is. So this is interesting. I, it, well, I think it's loosely related anyway. I was in Chicago for a family, um, just a bunch of family convened. And the chair of the music department is an extended family member of mine. And he was telling me about this thing called GeoWest that basically people are using to make all kinds of music that is, I mean, he basically said to his ear, you would not believe that there's not a real analog instrument involved in this, but he's just like, it's amazing. And so now they're teaching people how to use this platform to make symphonic things and all these kinds of great um, pieces of music that don't involve a single analog instrument. I believe that. I mean, that, that makes sense. Because, yeah, what, what they can do with sounds now is amazing. You know, plugins and all this thing. Yeah. I mean, I hope that makes it more accessible, right? Because then you don't have to have, Justin, like to your point, you don't have to have, I mean, you were what, one of 11 siblings, right? Uh, 10, 10. One of 10. Wow. I mean, there's <laughs> probably not a whole lot of space for like everyone to have like their own special instrument. Well, so, well, there were a lot of electric guitars and acoustic guitars. and You still have yeah. a lot of electric guitars. I have a lot now, but I, did, I didn't have any of them growing up. I only did percussion until pretty much end of college or just after. And then you've got a brother, at least one that was into show tunes, probably had a piano. Uh, well, he was jazz, no show tunes, uh, okay. but jazz. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Well, I hope it makes it more accessible because I just think about all the things you can do with an iPad these days. It's pretty mm-hmm. remarkable. Yeah. I mean, with the right person pulling the strings, all that stuff can be viable. Like I said, you know, when I, w- I would, you know, when drum machines first came out, drummers were, were you know, they, you know, and then they found out they can use that and play along to different loops and it can enhance a good performance. Yep. So in the right hands, the tools can be used in a really constructive and creative way. If you're just going to, you know, use it for real boilerplate things, I, you know, it just, it depends on the person pulling the strings with all that, you know, I, I, it, there's definitely a constructive use for all that stuff. I mean, I've got to believe horror movies is like, that's doable at this stage. <laughs> Probably. <laughs> <laughs> Could be. So, I mean, I not mean, the cult classic ones, but you know, the, the more modern variety that gets like a two point three on Metacritic or whatever scoring system they have. You know, and to to your point, Craig. I mean, there's a Steve Jobs quote, and someone asked him about you know what what does a computer you know do for most people, and he he pointed out the most efficient locomotion of any animal on the planet is a human on a bicycle, and that the way he looked at computers is they were bicycles for the mind. Um, And that's kind of how I'm thinking, you know, ultimately how all of us should be looking at AI. But what do you think about how might you 
at some point or someone else kind of foresee integrating IA into your workflow? I mean, obviously, right now, I think we can all agree. I've listened to some of these things that there, you know, there's plenty of these, um, you know, auto generate things that are not quite ready for prime time. Right. But I, I, I can assume that there are people like, okay, generate 10 themes for me and I can listen to those and say, that's close and I can change it. Right. Can you foresee using AI in your workflow at some point? Oh, absolutely. I just, I don't have a clear vision of exactly what it would be yet, but you know, the closest analogy that I could make in my mind, and again, there's, I'm sure there's people to talk to that are a lot more proficient and closer to this than I am, but uh, you're familiar with how MIDI works, right? Mm -hmm. I I have, I have um, 30 years of MIDI gear surrounding me right now. Okay, there you go. So, you know, imagine you just can play in a chord progression or you can orchestrate a bunch of stuff. And when I say orchestrate, I don't necessarily mean an orchestra. I mean, you're putting together a yep. bunch of instruments in some sort of fashion on your computer, but then you assign the sounds to that MIDI data later. So you yep. can play it in on a very remedial you know, thing, and then it can be great. And the beauty of MIDI isn't so much that the sounds, most of the sounds that are generated via MIDI, now some of them get pretty good, but most of the time you, I can still kind of hear it. For yep. the most part, and I'm like, all right, they didn't really do a good job with this, but uh, and it, and it doesn't even have to do with the actual sound. Sometimes it has to do with the way that sounds are treated. They didn't mm-hmm. add enough compression. The reverb is bad. Yeah, um, whatever. The delay wasn't as good as it would have been. They could have used some tape simulation. Blah blah blah. I can go on and on about all the the engineering tech terms. I'm sure I'll, if you have engineers that listen to this, you'll get emails correcting me about all my plugins and whatever. <laughs> I'll, I send, I'll there, send you all the feedback. I'm sure people please. Can work yeah, on, yeah, that's good. Send um, me because a lot of them, a lot of the engineers I work with are musicians on the side. Yeah, so and that's not uncommon. Yeah, that's like pulling a grenade and throwing it into the chat room. But the uh, my point <laughs> is with the MIDI thing is that what makes MIDI valuable, especially to people like me that are, you know capable of this stuff, but maybe not like I'm not a piano player. So I can play the piano. I I have good chordal knowledge and voice leading and things, but I I probably won't get it right the first time like a session piano player would. I can, however, play it in on my piano, uh, my MIDI piano and play it and then go back. And what's beautiful about MIDI is your ability to correct things and edit. It makes, it makes you avail, you know, it makes editing available to you. Now it takes time uh, whereas a session player would get it right the first time. Um, but I can go back and fix my mistakes and then I can reassign the sound and it can sound pretty good. So if you approach AI the same way that if you're just going to use it to spit out something and then take it as is, like you said, it's probably not ready for prime time. But if you can use it in a fashion like like we've grown to adapt and use MIDI, I see an enormous potential there because you can start with an idea. It can help you start with perhaps a cadence or a chord progression that hasn't been copywritten yet or that one that's nobody's found and yep. you need to use a mathematical equation to get to that at this point because there's been you know there's been a lot of songs written already and and, and it is getting harder and harder to be original so i could see a practical use in that aspect right there um and then from there you know start changing the sounds a little bit maybe don't go with your stock sounds maybe print that out and bring in some live players to recreate it but yeah, I absolutely see a path for it. Again, unless you're going to be intimidated by it and you see it as a threat, right. then it then that, that's you know then you know you should you should go into another field. But I mean, AI is probably <laughs> penetrating every aspect of every business at this point. You know, couldn't agree more. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I know in different areas there's a lot of fear, and you know, sure, everything needs to be 
at some point probably regulated to some extent, but you know, all things need to be considered holistically. But I think AI is going to do really amazing things in the arts, for the arts. And I think it's, I do think it'll make it not only more accessible, but I think it's going to create new, unique content that we might not have imagined. Like, did right. you guys ever see The Diving Bell and the Butterfly? No, where do you, did not. where are you finding all these movies? Oh man, tell Carrie, like we, we trade a lot of thoughts, but yeah, I just, um, so facets, I am, Milos Stelic used to run facets. He's, he's no longer with us. Um, he was just a genius and he actually gave me a series, a list of genres in the right order from his point of view to go and experience learning about film. So he, facets is actually based in Chicago. It's a nonprofit independent foreign film purveyor. Um, they were maybe getting into streaming some time ago. I haven't kept up with that. They have DVD by mail, which actually it's really hard to get streaming rights for a lot of foreign content. Um, it's, it's its own rigmarole that we can get into on a whole other show with a bunch of IP attorneys. Uh, but you can subscribe and they will send you four really interesting films. Their library is huge. So I just went and studied for like, you know, a couple of years in my spare time when I was single and had like all this weekend space. I would just, you know, get my spin bike, set it up in the living room and watch like on my own theater. I would watch film after film after film and take, you know, creative notes. So there's a lot of interesting stuff out there. But anyway, I went down this whole thing with Diving Bell and the Butterfly. And yes, that was a promo promo for facets. Go subscribe. You're supporting a good cause and you'll get exposed to great stuff. Excellent. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I look at films like that. And, and even if you go way back in time to like Vin Bender's Wings of Desire, I mean, that entire movie was filmed and then they layered on some dialogue. It's all done in voiceover. Right. It's just yep. like there's so much you can do that I feel like technology will liberate our ability to rethink the narrative. Uh-huh. And, and actually, on that note, Justin has a really good metaverse question, I think. Or I can I can steal your question if you want, Justin. Do it. Steal away. I'm going to steal it. All right. Okay. So did you hear that MTV is going to have best metaverse performance award? I did not, but why? Why not? Well, how's that's not a bad thing. That's a great thing, right? <laughs> I mean, it's just this is this is what you want. You want people to start thinking right. about how do I invent for an immersive world? What does that mean? Right. For the it content levels experience? the playing field. Yeah, it gives somebody in Iowa just as much a chance to compete as somebody here in Los Angeles. Yeah, exactly. So, absolutely. Now, see, that's like that's great. And like in-game concerts, right? You don't have to fly in and be on a stage. You can do it in right. COVID, right? It can all be it can be accessible to people that don't have six hundred dollars to throw down for a front row seat ticket. But you yeah. know, they can be part of this experience. And yeah, I'm very excited for the future of how these things all transform us as well, not us, because I'm not an artist, but transform artists and transform yeah. us as the audience. Well, I'll tell you one thing that did happen uh, during COVID that was interesting. And I also got a lot of undeserved uh, credit for creating something that I didn't create. And I, I spent more time saying, no, I, you know how um, during COVID, like a, a lot of musicians were like, well, you know, this gives us a chance to record our ideas. And we, you know, I was very, very busy during COVID because, you know, I had just finished my recording studio. Uh, so we were all, you know, musicians from all over the world were collaborating on these different projects. And then one of the things that became popular was to do a video of everybody tracking in their own studio. They would all play the same song, but they'd play their own part in their own studio. And then you'd sync it up later with video. And, you know, I got a lot of credit. Somebody was like, I can't believe you invented that. I'm like, no, I didn't, I didn't (laughs) invent anything. I I was told how to do it just like everybody else. But I don't know. uh, I think a project, I must've been involved in some of the very first projects that did that because I got emails from a lot of people asking how to do it and congratulations. And I'm like, no, no, it's, you know, I didn't invent the four, the little squares of musicians, you know, that had been done for years before COVID. Well, so, so this should have been one of your words though. I mean, one thing I've always known about you, you are 
perfectionist almost sounds like an insult, like <laughs> when you think about how to apply it. But if it's not good enough, you won't ever let it pass. You're just, you're not going to stop until you get it right. Well, yeah. And and again, I'm one of those people. And it, again, you know, when digital audio came out and people said, well, you shouldn't be able to edit your performance, you know, bullshit, because I, you know, I, I, I you know, thank God for digital audio. Um, you know, and I'm all for, you know, not making everything perfectly quantized and exact and everything. I, I want some life in there too. But, you know, one of the beautiful things about having my own studio and digital edit is that I can edit a bad fill or a bad decision I yep. made in the thing. Yep. Or if you're a guitar player and you play the wrong chord, you're able to go back and fix it. And, um, yep. you know, in the comfort of my own studio, I was able to go and refine several perform- performances that were exported to those little collaborative efforts. And one of the my favorite ones was uh, started by a piano player friend of mine. It was called Stuck at Home Records. And it was just cool because <laughs> it was a lot of really great musicians stuck in their yep. studios during COVID. Yep. And we, you know, the, the goal of the project was to write a one-minute tune and pass it around with no parameters, no framework. Just here's an idea, pass it to the next guy. He puts his idea on, pass it to the next guy. And over the course of a week, you'd write a song. And that project went on for like 12 or 13 weeks. Wasn't this some of the stuff you posted about on Facebook? Correct. I remember seeing that. Yeah, that was really interesting. Just for the record, back to your other point, if it weren't for Justin's ability to edit me, he would never let me co-host the show with him. (laughs) I find that hard to believe. I think... uh, I think I think this show would. Be, I, I I hope they leave all the edits in on this show. It's it's great. Well, I can. It'll save me a lot of time. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So, anything we haven't asked you that you think we should have asked? I'm just thrilled that you have this kind of podcast that kind of marries technology to musicians, and you cover seem to cover a lot of ground with well thought out, um, well researched questions and and good ideas. It's refreshing. You know, we like learning about new things and, and we have lots of interests. So I think we're lucky that way that we know people like you who are willing to come on and tell us all about what they know. And, and I will say it's also a really great opportunity right now if there's anything you want to plug, Craig, mm-hmm. new things that we should know about that you're working on. You know, I, I everything's good for me right now. I've been, I've been really fortunate to be as busy as I am. Like I said, during COVID, because I coincidentally had just kind of wrapped up touring for a little while. Um, so I, I wanted to record, so I built a recording studio and all through COVID I recorded coming out of it. I'm back playing live. And then, like I said, now I'm trying to expand my production music publishing exploration and that's going really, really well. You know, I've got music in a lot of TV shows. If you go on IMDB, you can read a partial list of some of my credits, but I have a lot of stuff coming out in the next couple of months that I'm, you know, I'm really looking forward to. I'm excited um, about it. Things you can't tell us about or you'd have to kill us. At this point, no, it's it's that it's not one hundred percent sure. Like you, you submit for these TV shows, and you give you give music supervisors like fifty songs. I'm really proud of ten of them, um, or maybe I've given them ten things, and I'm proud of all of them. And you just never really know what direction they're going to go. And and you know, sometimes decisions are made by committee, and it's both good and bad. It's good if you know people are educated. Um, so yeah, there's the potential to, to, to be some really good things happening for me in the next few months. And I'm excited about all of it, to be honest with you. Um, so yeah, um, yeah, a lot of good things going on. I don't really have a lot to self-promote and plug. You talked about being evaluated by a committee. I, I, this is where I would trust AI, actually, more than a committee, <laughs> historically speaking. Yeah, you know, I'm, I might agree with you there um, because... Some committees are, and I, I don't want to get within the chain of command of any business anywhere, but 
yeah, some of what you see uh, that decisions made by committee is is a little scary. Yeah. Well, this is true in the business world too. I actually feel Correct. like people use their lens of prior experience. They overuse it. Right. You know, things are so dis- they're so easily disrupted now that yep. if you're not able to really think outside of how you think, you just automatically you're, you're hamstrung. And yeah. it's, it's true. There's like a bunch of consensus-driven culture out there. Just mm-hmm. not only a total bore, but it's terrible for business. Yeah, and, and you know, people all, will almost walk into the room and go, oh, "I agree with whatever he says," and it's like, "Well, he hasn't said anything yet." You know, wait till wait till he says it, and then you can fall over yourself agreeing with him. You know, so yeah, and and it's like, uh, yeah, trying to be innovative is is always been challenging. But you know, again, I, I if if you want things to change and you want some some variety and you don't want everything to sound the same, then that's exactly what's necessary. And sometimes decisions as far as what music goes into what show is is done by committee and it can it can certainly water things down more than i had hoped so that's why i don't want to say too much about what's going on because you never really know (laughs) until you watch it on tv you know well i joke around with someone on my team that uh whenever it comes to talking about something innovative especially if it's coming out of our mouths if people aren't appalled or just totally like what are you talking about then it's probably (laughs) not good enough like you know they just there needs to be an allergic reaction right at the beginning (laughs) for it to be probably something remotely able to be game-changing that's great. What a great analogy. Like if you don't get a rash from it, it's probably not worthwhile. Mental monkeypox. Right. <laughs> oh, great. Um, so so to that point, I think what what I'm probably um, a counterculturalist maybe when it comes to AI on this, but where I think from a creative standpoint, what's more interesting to me are the mistakes that the AI, AI makes that might be interesting, right? That might point to something. Uh, I don't want my AI to come out with that the perfect thing that right that fits uh, within all of the guardrails and and it follows all the rules. I want I want to see where it fails, and to see if there's something interesting there that can be derived from that failure. Because that's kind of for me at least the most creative things I've ever done are things where I you know was on the brink of of you know failing, and then that that failure sparked a new idea. Yeah, well, and you can see a lot of that in the AI driven fine arts because there are some things that. You know, they're interestingly grotesque, but like if you have a morbid curiosity at the aesthetic level, but they're not, they're not pleasing at all on occasion, especially with the human face. Like the things that it'll just do, you're just like, oh, I don't know about this. And I'm not talking about cubism, but I'm sure that's how people reacted to cubism at some point too. Um, But there's, I, I know what you're saying, Justin, and I do think that that's fascinating as well. You know, and the why it developed it that way. Exactly. We will likely never know the why. I know. It's a, that's it's a black though. box. You can speculate, though. That's that's fun yeah. conversational fodder. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you for joining us. This has been super fun. You know, I'd say this to every guest, but I, I mean it every time. I wish I could get you guys in a room together, with or without the bullet, with or without taxidermy on the walls. Um, I, I just think it would be fun for you two to hang out and maybe even work on some music together. I was going to yeah. say either his studio or, or mine. Yeah, you both have very nice studios. And by the way, your studios yeah. look wildly different. And, and I have and I have bourbon. I have oh, bourbon in mind. Oh, you too, do have too. bourbon. All right. Well, I can come up to Silicon Valley. It's He's fine. also got. I'm in Chicago, stuff. actually. Oh, right. you are. Okay. I, yeah. But I'd so love we're... him to come down to Silicon Valley. That would be great. You can come up. He can come down here. We can use Chris's studio. Definitely. Right on. Okay, hold on. We promised you a little AI-created music. So what we have here is a track created by an AI agent at Iva.com. That's A-I-V-A.com. It created the track in in MIDI, and I mapped that MIDI to some sample-based instruments in Logic Pro. So the closing credits will follow.
Thank you for listening to Transpose. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe or leave us a review on iTunes, Spotify, or your podcast platform of choice. Until next time, don't forget to switch it up a little.